When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about Hillary in Haiti, a topic that reveals a lot about her view of the world and method of addressing problems. With Amy Willens, she's written two books about Haiti. Also later in this hour, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction was awarded this week to Viet Nguyen for his novel The Sympathizer. It begins on the last day of the Vietnam War, And our hero is a Viet Cong spy inside the Saigon Army. We'll speak with the prize-winning novelist later in this hour. First up today, maybe you heard the news, Tuesday was the New York primary. For comment and analysis, we turn to Frank Rich. He writes a column on politics for New York Magazine. Before that, he wrote for a long time for the New York Times op-ed page. And he's also executive producer of Veep, the political comedy series on HBO. We spoke with him from our satellite studio. Frank Rich, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, let's start with the one we we care about the most, Hillary 58, Bernie 42. How close are we to the end of Bernie's chances? I think uh, we're pretty close to the end. I think the fact that his own camp is talking about pulling it out uh, by you know wooing superdelegates or having some kind of Republican-style contested convention with multiple ballots suggests uh, the end is nigh. I don't. I, it's mathematically possible, sort of, for him to pull this out, but it's just if you look at the map and what's to come, it's not happening. And are there any consolations here for Bernie supporters at at this point? In a lot of ways, his his base represents the future of the Democratic Party. Yes, there's consolation that in a moral sense, but in a practical political sense, uh, the fact that uh, the loyalty of his voters, which is a a substantial uh, part of the Democratic Party and a part of its base, uh, is alarming in a way for Hillary Clinton, because uh, I feel, contrary to at least what a lot of Democrats are saying publicly, I don't think it's going to be a cakewalk for her in November against the likely Republican nominee, Trump. Uh, I don't believe that. I mean, I believe the national polls now are registering something, but probably something, just a snapshot. But what's been going on, uh, sort of lost in the uh, noise of the New York primary, is in national polls, and most notably uh, a kind of devastating Wall Street Journal NBC News poll that came out in the past few days, she's, she's fail, uh, failing. I mean, she's, she's in terms of her negativity numbers, um, they're not in Trump territory yet, but they're, they'd be terrible by any other standard. I mean, she's very underwater in terms of negative approval ratings and feeling of voters that she's untrustworthy. 
And there's been a national slide uh, just since January in her, her positive ratings from both African Americans and Hispanic voters. Now, there's no way in the world that she's not going to win both those groups by a landslide in November. But if the numbers are depressed because uh, people are uninspired, and if the younger voters um, who love Sanders vote indifferently, if they, without a Sanders or a Obama on the ballot, they don't turn out, there could be a turnout problem, a lack of enthusiasm that actually could affect the November election. I saw on those uh, exit polls from New York, 14% of Democrats in New York said they would not vote for Hillary in November. Of course, we expect that to go down. Uh, Only 22% of New York Democrats said they were excited about a Hillary presidency. I don't think that's going to go up much. Well, that's that's a very good point, and it's depressing for those who uh, are concerned about a possible uh, Trump presidency, um, because she needs she needs the enthusiasm. Um, you know, look, take take black. Let's go back to black voters a yeah. second. Mitt Romney got six percent of the black vote, and that is um, exactly what Barry Goldwater did in 1964 <laughs> oh, when boy. when he came out against the Civil Rights Act. Um, so maybe uh, Trump will get four percent of the black vote or three percent, but it doesn't matter if the numbers are lower and if there's a larger white turnout and a white male turnout, maybe it won't happen, but that's a threat. It could boost the Republicans unexpectedly, and we can't just always fight the last war and assume that the uh, uh, map is going to be the same every year. And the fact is there's a certain kind of disaffected voter um, that likes Trump, some of some of whom some of these voters are Democrats or disaffected Democrats and independents. It's not just the hard right Republican base that loves Ted Cruz. It's a different kind of voter, and it it could present a challenge. Well, Trump does have right now anyway the highest negatives in the in the history of polling of major party candidates. Hillary has to feel pretty good about about her op, her likely opponent. She does, but hers are also very very negative, and and would and if we're not against the standard of Trump, um, would be alarming, and as, as some people have said, disqualifying for the nomination. That's how bad they are. So it's fine if Trump still wins these the negative sweepstakes, but again, turnout is going to be more important here than anything, and that's my concern is about the Sanders base of the party not turning out for the numbers that she may need. I'm taking a pessimistic view, and maybe it's unwarranted, but I do think we should consider that view. Well, Hillary's line is to to uh, Bernie's uh, supporters is that she and Bernie have uh, much more in common than, than they have uh, differences. I'm not sure that a lot of Bernie's people agree with that, and I'm not sure uh, how true it is. Uh, certainly, many don't agree, and I'm not... I'm not sure how how true it is either. I do think, quite honestly, he should stay in the race, even if he has no chance. I think it only benefits her to continue to have to debate him yeah. and iron iron this stuff out. And she's never going to be a, a Sanders uh, have a Sanders uh, complete ideological profile or anything like it, but. On the other hand, I think they've got to. She's got to keep engaging, ideally in a positive way, with him and his supporters, and also not feed 
the stage to Trump. If he drops out, uh, then this, the situation you describe uh, about among Sa- Sanders faithful remains frozen in aspect. Uh, it could be fluid if if they just keep going, and um, that's what I think Democrats should hope. We saw uh, a different Donald Trump in his victory speech. I'm sure you noticed he did not talk about Lion Ted anymore. What what was his new term for his opponent? Wasn't it Senator? Senator Cruz. Yes. Senator Cruz. Oh, well, you know, he's not since Disraeli have we seen <laughs> the statesmanship of Donald Trump as he, as he senses victory. Um, it, the whole thing is surreal. I happened to be uh, last night coming out of a, a dinner um, in Midtown in New York um, around, uh, around, I guess, around 10 o'clock at night, 10, 10, yeah, 10 o'clock, and to walk on Fifth Avenue by happenstance past Trump Tower and see every satellite dish, every oh. you know network and local station represented and people doing stand-ups, it's really, it's like insane. For people who've known Trump as, you know, New Yorkers do all these years, this man is, uh, has a chance, at, uh, a strong chance of winning the Republican nomination and, it, and some chance of being president is just uh, mind-boggling. And, 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 and him suddenly ad- adopting locutions like Senator Cruz instead of Lion Ted, or Sen- next we'll have Senator Rubio, perhaps, <laughs> or uh, uh, instead of Little Marco, um, if, if, if Rubio figures at the convention in some way, um, it doesn't alter the fact this is surreal. Well, you know, Trump's whole appeal up to this point, among Republicans at least, was the shtick about Lion Ted and little Marco. Do they really want a respectable Trump? I honestly think it doesn't matter. I think that uh, Trump has brought them into the tent, and his loyalists loyalists are extremely uh, loyal. And look, forget about it. They put up with... Any changes in language, they put up with, you know, investigative journalism about Trump University, about eminent domain, about him using um, uh, illegal uh, uh, immigrants to build his own properties, even while threatening to export them. I mean, it's just unbelievable how resilient he is among his followers, You and, and not to mention, you know, the, the, the misogyny and the racial remarks and everything else. But these people are unshakable, and he could just start... I suspect reciting the Lord's Prayer in Pig Latin at every uh, rally, and no one would give a damn. Trump's line is, our jobs are being sucked out of our states. I wonder if Hillary has a convincing comeback to that. She she has a comeback that we heard during this campaign. It's not terribly convincing. It's, you know, I'm going to go up, she goes up states and I'm going to bring jobs back. But, of course, she promised a lot of this. And it, and it didn't happen uh, when when she ran for Senate, um, and that's blamed on the economy and whatever, and the crash of two thousand and eight. But um, no, she do, she doesn't. You can't you can't fight rhetoric which lacks any specific detail or argument uh, with facts, because he's not playing, you know, to rash, in a rational way. Last question before we let you go. Veep opens this weekend. Uh, we're very eager to see how Veep has tried to keep up with the craziness in American politics. Can you give us any preview? Well, here's the thing. You know, as you know, uh, John, Veep is not uh, does not deal with contemporary politics at all. It's created its own world. We never even refer 
uh, to contemporary politicians. You know, other shows might have Nancy Pelosi or John McCain do a cameo, or they might have references to Obama or Trump or Clinton. We do none of that. We don't even, we never refer to the political parties um, or identify people by party, and we never um, mention really any politicians later than like Johnson and Nixon. What we do do, and obviously I'm biased since <laughs> I produce the show, but is try to create an alternative world that shows the, the chaos, the degradation, the power hunger of uh, people in Washington. And the, you know, we're the un-West Wing, the un-Aaron Sorkin. Nothing turns out in favor of truth in the American way. Everyone's just trying to stab each other in the, in the back. And I do feel we have found a farcical correlative to the insanity now without having a Donald Trump character or a Hillary Clinton character. I can hardly wait. Frank Rich, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great talking to you as always. Thank you. Now we want to talk about Hillary in Haiti. It's a long-term relationship and a revealing one. For that, we turn to Amy Willens, She's an award-winning journalist, novelist, and writer. Her book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for 2014. She also wrote The Rainy Season Haiti Since Duvalier. Her other work has received the Whiting Writers Award, the Penn Martha Albrand Nonfiction Award, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters Rosenthal Award. She publishes widely, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy Willens, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. Hillary and Bill say that Haiti has a special place in their hearts and has had for uh, more than 30 years. Why is that? Yeah, they got there even before I did. <laughs> um, they went for their honeymoon in 1975, and uh, their host was uh an executive with Citibank. And Citibank has a long record in Haiti, uh, dating from the days where it was called the National Citibank, and was uh, a, a primary reason why uh, the American occupation began. And uh, that was a 19-year, no, 29-year occupation of Haiti, uh, a marine occupation. And so this is a, a big player on the Haitian scene. And so when Bill and Hillary went... They met all sorts of people who have done business with National City and with Citibank there, and those are their original roots in Haiti. And, of course, they were seduced by the country because it's a very seductive country. I, I just find it astounding that for their honeymoon, they were guests of Citibank. On your honeymoon, were you guests of Citibank? I wasn't guests of anyone, unfortunately, <laughs> had they asked. The Clinton Foundation... Uh, says Haiti is one of their key areas. They say since 2010, they've raised more than $30 million for Haiti. They say they've spent the money, quote, on partnerships and programs that encourage economic growth, empower girls and women, and support small businesses, close quote. What can you tell us about the Clinton Foundation's work in Haiti? Well, that statement from the Clinton Foundation is in part true. Uh, they have done things with women's groups. They've done things with uh, small microfinance, one of Hillary's favorite things. But they also deal with 
the power centers in Haiti. And this is a problem in Haiti. Those people have been running the country since before Duvalier fell in 1986. And during the transition to so-called democracy, also uh, the mulatto elite and business figures and American uh, employers in Haiti. Those are largely the people with whom the Clintons consult. So they're kind of continuing the dominance of these groups in Haiti, and that's who they know how to deal with. You know, it's like the 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 famous story of journalists going in and say saying anyone here been raped and speaks English. They need to have the people who speak English. They need to have the people who know how to manipulate power in Haiti, so that the the average citizen is ignored largely in the way the Clintons operate. One of the jewels of the Clinton Foundation efforts in Haiti is the industrial park at the far end of the island, Caracol. Uh, I know you you reported from there. You've been there. What do the Clintons say about Caracol Industrial Park? What did you find? So you're right. Caracol is a jewel in the crown of the Clinton plan for Haiti. When the Clintons sort of came back enforced to Haiti after the earthquake, they reignited this plan for an industrial park in the north. So although it was a pre-earthquake idea, if you can call it an idea, it was then funded with earthquake monies by the Clinton funds, various funds in Haiti. And although it was funded with earthquake money, it was very, very far from the earthquake. The Clintons justified this by saying what we want to do is attract people away from Port-au-Prince, which is on a known fault. So they worked really hard. I have to say a huge amount of energy was put into what I consider to be a flawed idea, uh, a maculadora in Haiti. And the Clintons concept was that it would bring in 65,000 jobs to this northern area. So 300-plus farmers were basically kicked off their lands, and South Korean garment company was installed as the anchor for Caracol, it's called, the industrial park. And now, almost six years later, there are... um, 4,500 workers, not 65,000 workers, and there are lines every day of Haitians desperate to get jobs who cannot get jobs there. You know, I would call it not a raving success. I would even call it a failure. But worse than that to me is that the the very ideas behind it are antiquated old ideas for what to do with the developing world, which is to turn it into a labor camp. A lot of the uh, criticisms of the Clinton Foundation in Haiti are uh, about what Bill has been doing, Bill's friends, Bill's projects, Bill's visits. Has Hillary had very much to do with this in during the Obama years? Well, Bill was, after the earthquake, which was 2010, he was made head of the interim Haiti uh, Recovery Commission. And they pulled in about, I think, $54 million in contributions, both from large donors and, you know, you and me, John. And um, the U.S. also, the State Department, put its aid through the IHRC. So Bill was head of the IHRC. Hillary was head of the State Department. So Bill reported essentially to Hillary. 
uh, about American monies coming through the IHRC. But the IHRC was not very transparent, and people still don't know where all those monies went. President Martelly, who was basically installed by Hillary Clinton as president of Haiti, asked the IHRC to disband after he was elected in 2011. I can only assume that he asked them to disband because they asked him to ask them to disband because they didn't want to be too transparent about what was happening with the money. I'm not saying stolen money, but irresponsibly meted out monies. And Hillary was Secretary of State, ultimately responsible. Ultimately responsible, yes. So you've said uh, Hillary and Bill have the wrong friends in Haiti and the wrong strategies for Haiti. Chelsea Clinton has, turns out, in private, once upon a time in secret, made some of these same criticisms. Yes, she uh, wrote a very long email, as she said in the email. If I had had more time, this would have been a shorter email. I'm sure she wishes now that it had been shorter. And so this is one of Hillary's released emails from Hillary, from Chelsea to mom and dad and to Paul Farmer of Partners in Health, among others. And it is an early critique of the international strategy, including the State Department's strategy in Haiti after the earthquake. At the end, there's a, a postscript where Chelsea says how she came to all these realizations. And I realize that although this is a very interesting, she's very smart and she gets a lot very quickly. But it, it's a 30-year-old's at the time. Uh, very fast lightning tour of Haiti, four days she spent to write this very long memo to her parents. And what it speaks to me of not only is her critical ability and her understanding that the Haitian man in the street is not being represented by the international donors and their goals, but also that she too is part of this kind of supranational team that feels empowered to run everything in the world, she says to them at one point, Mom, Dad, can't you call the Vatican and ask them to rebuild the Catholic Church in Haiti? I mean... You don't ask your parents for things like that. <laughs> no, nor do my children ask me. Yeah, so this memo addressed to Dad and Mom says, the incompetence is mind-numbing. The U.N. people I encountered were frequently out of touch, anachronistic in their thinking at best, and arrogant and incompetent at worst. And as you say, her big thing she wants them to know is that Haitians are very much organizing themselves. They want to help themselves. They want reliability and accountability from their partners. I kind of like Chelsea in this. Oh, and no. She's, she's magnificent. And what you have to realize when she's attacking the U.N. there is that Bill Clinton is the U.N. special envoy in Haiti at the moment when she's writing it and has been for several years. She also noticed the SOAP subcommittee in one of the camps. I love that. What's the SOAP subcommittee? Well, she says there, when, what, the quote you read, that the Haitians are organizing themselves. So one committee in these settlement camps of displaced people is the sanit sanitation committee. And in that committee, there's a subcommittee, the SOAP subcommittee, because Haitians are paying attention to what Haitians need. That Chelsea memo is so uh, fascinating. We'll post a link to it oh, at the uh, website. You can find it at the nation.com uh, start making sense page. What does all this tell us, not just about the Clinton Foundation in Haiti? What does it tell us about Hillary, Hillary's understanding of the world, how what Hillary might do as president? 
Well, I thought I'd tell this little story in, about when I was there in, I guess, at the end of 2012. The Clinton-Bush Foundation and the World Bank had funded this place called the Royal Oasis Hotel with a loan to get it built, a luxury hotel, five-star. Anyway, Haiti five-star. And uh, I went by at the opening, and there were all these Haitian elite people in satin dresses and tuxedos coming in. And my friend and I went into the hotel, and uh, I had spent that day in a displaced persons camp, the St. Anne camp. And Haitians were living under tarps and sheets. There was an elderly man. He was living in a tent that was not as tall as he was and almost uh, twice as wide as he was, which was he was about a foot wide. So I had that in my mind as I went into this Royal Oasis Hotel where the Clinton Fund had spent so much money, the Clinton Bush Fund to be exact. And I got in the elevator with my friend and we thought we'd go up to see the presidential suite. Well, we got stuck in the elevator because the elevator wasn't even working in this elaborate hotel. And it was just, then we noticed that all the workers there, although this was touted as a place that would give Haitians employment, seemed to be Dominican, Spanish-speaking people. And I kept thinking what they should really do is hire all the people from the St. Anne camp to work there. And since they need housing in the St. Anne camp, they should let them stay in the rooms. That would be only fair since the earthquake monies were spent on this hotel. So that's the kind of thinking. And what the hotel and another hotel like it, a Marriott hotel also built with earthquake funding, what those are there for is to welcome business investors in Haiti and to welcome also aid workers in Haiti when they first arrive. So it's really earthquake funding going to outsiders, uh, built by outsiders with some Haitian help. It's it's just a skewed way of thinking about how this could work. And that's the problem, to my mind, with the Hillary outlook, how the world works, is that it's all corporate, that there's very little democratic grassroots input. They say all the right things. They've listened to development workers, but they don't really do it. Amy Willens. Her most recent book about Haiti is Farewell, Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me, John. Now it's time to talk about the novel that won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction this week. It's called The Sympathizer. It starts with the fall of Saigon in 1975, seen from the perspective of a Vietnamese man, a captain in South Vietnam's secret police who's also a spy for the Viet Cong. It's one of the few novels about the Vietnam War written by a Vietnamese person with Vietnamese characters at its center, and it is terrific. The author is Viet Nguyen, N-G-U-Y-E-N, kind of Nguyen. It's his first novel, He's published a lot of other things, short stories, scholarly books, articles. He's an associate professor of English and American Studies and Ethnicity at USC. Viet Nguyen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, John. Our uh, narrator calls himself a man of two faces and also of two minds. And what we are reading is a confession, apparently. Tell, Tell us more about this guy. Well, he is a spy in the South Vietnamese army, and the novel begins in April 1975 when Saigon falls or is liberated, depending on your point of view. 
And his new mission is to flee with the remnants of that army to the United States, where he's going to spy on their efforts to take their homeland back. And it's based on, uh, you know, real historical events inspired by certain kinds of real historical personages. But the character of the captain is someone who is a man uh, torn between cultures, torn between sides, torn between beliefs. He does see things from both sides. He empathizes with both sides in this kind of a conflict. And that's his great uh, insight, but also his great uh, tragedy as well. You know, when I started reading this book, I, I didn't know you or your work. All I knew was that you, you taught at USC. I wondered, who is this guy who can write this amazing uh, novel? Turns out you have a, a complicated and interesting family history. Tell us about that. Well, I was born in Vietnam in a little town called Ban Mai uh, which was famous for coffee and for being the first town run over in uh, 1975 in the final invasion. And we had a very dramatic story. You know, my parents uh, basically had to give up everything and flee, run for their lives with uh, myself and my 11-year-old brother. I was four years old at the time, and we came to the United States as refugees. Um, and, you know, we lived very much in some ways the American dream story because my parents rebuilt their fortunes and uh, became very successful. My brother went to Harvard and is now the chair of a White House commission, and I'm a professor. But underneath all of that, I grew up in a Vietnamese ethnic enclave in San Jose where I was constantly surrounded by stories of trauma and loss and mourning and suffering of, from people who, you know, who had not left the war behind, had not left their country behind, were were convinced that they could go back one day, that communism would end, and they could take their country back again. And uh, I just grew up with this sense that the war was not over, that um, Vietnamese people remained deeply influenced by it and were not going to forget it. And that even more than that, the stories that we knew and that I heard were stories that were not being heard by other Americans who preferred to hear stories of their own telling yeah. about their American war in Vietnam rather than the war or the history that the Vietnamese people knew. What Americans know about Vietnam comes, I think, mostly from from uh, movies, and, and movies about Vietnam play a, a memorable part in your novel, The Sympathizer, our, our protagonist uh, goes to the Philippines to work with the Vietnamese extras in a gigantic Hollywood film uh, about the war. Uh, this seems to be Apocalypse Now. When did you first see Apocalypse Now? I first saw Apocalypse Now when I was probably 10 or 11 on the VCR. And it was much, I was much too young to see this movie. I, I think it really scarred me. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where the American sailors massacre a sampan full of innocent civilians. And even years later, when I would tell people about this movie and this scene, I, I would find that my voice would tremble with rage and anger because I'd been affected so deeply by it. And I've been affected so deeply by it because, on the one hand, it's a great work of art. I really admire this movie. I actually love to watch it. But on the other hand, the only place for someone like me in that movie is the person who's going to be killed, the gook. And this was symbolic for me, in general, of how it is that Americans remembered their war in Vietnam. They remembered it as a tragedy, as a kind of a dark conflict that was really about Americans fighting Americans. It's a civil war in the American soul. And the Vietnamese people were simply extras in this American drama. And of course, I knew that that was not true. I knew that this war was, was at least as much about us as it was about Americans, uh, given that 
while 58,000 Americans had died, 3 million Vietnamese people had died. And I felt that it was so important to me to understand more about this war and this history, about what it meant to both Americans and Vietnamese, and to one day try to tell a story myself. Our uh, protagonist in The Sympathizer keeps coming back to one sentence, especially in this section about going to the Philippines to work with extras on what must be Apocalypse Now. That is the sentence, quote, they cannot represent themselves, therefore they must be represented, close quote. If we invited listeners to call in to identify that, I'm sure our switchboards would be full of Marxist theoreticians who know that that line comes from Marx's book, The 18th Brumaire, about the 1848 revolution. But, but what does it mean to, to our protagonist in the context of the Vietnam War, its aftermath, Hollywood movies? They cannot represent themselves, therefore they must be represented. Well, he understands that the act of representation is partially about storytelling, that in the American imagination, there are all these dark populations out there who cannot represent themselves through the act of storytelling. Therefore, Americans have to tell their story for them, which is very much how the Hollywood version of the Vietnam War has taken place. But there's also a political meaning to that as well, which is that because these people cannot represent themselves, Americans must go there to these foreign places, to these dark places, and take over and run the show for themselves. So there's a distinct connection between the way that Americans see the world and tell stories about the world and the way that Americans justify their intervention uh, overseas. And so t situating all this in a Hollywood movie about the Vietnam War condensed all of these issues into one episode. And uh, our protagonist has his doubts about working on a Hollywood film, but, but his, uh, what do we call them, his handlers back in communist Vietnam tell him, remember Mao at Yan'an, uh, and that's all he's told, those four words, but, but he knows exactly what, what it means. What does it mean? Well, in that great talk that Mao gives, he says that artists and writers have a role to play in the revolution, and the role that they play is to create art that will both speak to the masses, but also challenge and elevate the masses at the same time. And he's saying this in a very particular, obviously, communist moment to encourage everyone, including artists and intellectuals and writers, to support the revolution and, and to use their art as revolutionary weapons. And this would have a really devastating consequence in the long run because artists and intellectuals and writers who deviated from this program would wind up in re-education camps or in self-criticism sessions and be forced to uh, toe the party line, quite literally. But, and that actually is, you know, part of what happens in the novel, but I also wanted to take away from what that speech is saying and present the idea that, in fact, this novel itself aspires to do part of what Mao is talking about, which is to take a very serious, very complicated, very conflicted political history and tell an entertaining story about it. And by so doing, get that out to a large audience that will be hopefully thrilled and uh, entertained by the story, but also be forced or encouraged to think about the political issues that are being raised in it. 
The Sympathizer has been compared to to the novels of John Le Carre and, and Graham Greene. I, I I can see that, but but I wonder if Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man isn't closer to what you're you're trying to do. All those figures were uh, important to me, but you're right. Ralph Ellison was very much on the forefront of my mind. Anybody who's read Invisible Man read, remembers the first. Or remembers the opening of that novel will certainly hear echoes of it in the first paragraph of this book that I read, and that's very deliberate on my part. I did think of my character as some somebody like the Invisible Man, and somebody like uh, the character in Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, which Ellison also drew on, and that's what I set out to do. But by the time I finished the book, I realized that I was also departing uh, to a considerable degree from Ellison's vision, uh, because as much as I uh, respect and admire Invisible Man, I do disagree with it on at least one point, which is that by the end of the book, what Ellison really wants to affirm is the great power of the the great American novel and of the great American story and of the place that uh, black Americans can occupy in that. And I'm actually much more critical of that type of a narrative, and partially because this book, unlike Invisible Man, is not set only within the United States, but is an international novel that takes into account how it is that the things that the U.S. did overseas impacts the things that happen to people within this country. And it also takes into account the fact that there was, you know, an, an actual communist revolution that this war deals with. And I didn't simply want to tell a story that said, America's great, the liberal American story is what we need to turn to, and communist revolution is bad which is what would be expected of someone like me writing in the United States. So the ending of the novel is very important in terms of challenging these kinds of expected uh, outcomes in the story. Yeah, I want to I talk about the ending of the novel, but not, not for a minute yet. I, I want to pick up on what you said here about the, the, the search for the great American novel uh, and, and how uh, you don't want to be part of that. In fact, you suggested in other interviews that it's equally important to search for the great anti-American novel, and I would like to nominate The Sympathizer for that, uh, for that title. Is, is that okay with you? I think it's fine by me. I think it might offend a lot of people, maybe not your listeners in particular, but a considerable amount of the American population would not take kindly to the idea of an anti-American novel. But one of the things that I mentioned in, the no- in this novel is that being anti-American is not so bad, because if there's one thing Americans like to be they like to be at the center of the story. So, of course, they would prefer to be at the center of the great American story, but they're actually okay with being at the center of the anti-American story, too, and anti-American already includes American. And that is one way to understand how Americans have told stories about the Vietnam War and its aftermath. You know, much of the literature and the film that's been produced has depicted the Vietnam War from the American point of view as being a very negative experience in which Americans have done terrible things. So on the one hand, there has been some capacity for Americans to recognize uh, the atrocities that have happened and the flaws of American behavior. But what that also means is that the American experience is still being put at the center. Americans would still rather be the anti-heroes of their own story than to be the extras. (laughs) The end of of The Sympathizer... I think it's the last page our protagonist uh, says he is, quote, a revolutionary in search of a revolution, close quote. Now, I take that as a a kind of a happy ending. Uh, Is that okay with you? 
that's about as happy as I could get myself to be at the end of the book, right? And okay. again, this is a response to Ellison. You know, Ellison ends his book, you know, after his Invisible Man has tried to become a revolutionary and discovers that the revolution has betrayed him, he turns back to the idea of individualism and of saving one, by saving oneself, you can save the rest of society and that we're all on our own, basically. And that narrative really, again, affirms some really core American beliefs about uh, liberal individualism. I didn't want my book to end that way, even if it is critical of the communist revolution. I wanted the book to affirm the, the idea that revolutions still need to happen, that justice is, our, is the question that most interests the narrator and myself, and that even if one man-made revolution has failed, that doesn't mean that the idea of revolution is over. The Sympathizer, let's call it the great anti-American novel, Viet Nguyen. Thanks for this amazing book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. It's been a pleasure. We taped that interview with Viet Nguyen last April when his book was first published. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction this week. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.